Matthew chapter 28. Can I invite you to join me there, church family? Matthew chapter 28, first book in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We want the, the gospel of Matthew, last chapter of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. If you need a Bible this morning, you didn't get out of the house with yours, we've got Bibles that you could take and, and use in this time. There's a note page, looks like this. Grab that out of the bulletin if you wouldn't mind because that'll prove helpful along the way. When Jesus is your king. Now, this is the mini-series, if you've been with us, and even if you have not been, this is the mini-series that we've been sharing together during this special season of Easter, which, of course, we celebrated last Sunday. Great day, extra special time for all of us. And in this little mini-series, we have taken... Uh, Matthew's gospel and his presentation of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we've used special parts of Matthew's gospel to help us focus our thoughts in an Easter resurrection direction. So a few weeks ago, we were in Matthew chapter 2. The king came into our world. And then in Matthew chapter 21 on Palm Sunday, the king presented himself to his people riding on the back of a donkey's colt. Then on Good Friday evening, we were in Matthew chapter 27. The king dies for a sinful world. He dies for you. He dies for me, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And and then in Matthew 28 last week, verses 1 through 10, uh, we were talking about the king rising from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave by his resurrection. That's where we have been up to this point. And, and now you might reasonably think, well, okay, Pastor Tim, Easter season is past, mini-series is over, time to head back to Ecclesiastes and the challenges of living life under the sun, which was the series that we interrupted so that we could do our Easter focus together. And that would be a reasonable thought. Head back to Ecclesiastes this morning with Easter in the rearview mirror. But that's not what we're going to do. Not today. Next time. Next time we'll be back in Ecclesiastes. The reason not today, church family, is because we really need one more moment, I believe, with Matthew's gospel in order to consider what we're going to call this morning the king's speech. From Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Perhaps the single best-known passage in the Gospel of Matthew, without question, one of the most important passages in the entire Bible for Jesus' church, which, of course, is all of us. And I simply could not pass up the opportunity for us to spend time here since we were already so close, uh, already having been in chapter 28. Didn't want to let this get away from us if we had a moment to share it together. So here's how these five last verses of Matthew's gospel read the king's speech. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's the end of the book. 
It's the king's speech. Jesus' last recorded words in Matthew's gospel. The, the Holy Spirit puts them last, I believe, to emphasize their importance to us. It's, it's kind of like when you uh, have to stop saying something in order to hear the echo. Well, the silence after Matthew chapter 28 verse 20 is meant to, to let these words echo for the next 21 centuries in the ears of the church. And that's why they're last. In these words, we are told why we are here and what we are to be doing until the king returns. The king's speech. Now, many of you would know that I have borrowed this title. It's actually the title to a movie, isn't it? Of the same name, The King's Speech. And in that movie, that movie talks, it, it tells the engaging story of a, of a member of Great Britain's royal family, King George VI, who, who suffers from a crushingly debilitating speech impediment that he's had his whole life. He stutters. And he stutters terribly, especially when he is stressed. When his older brother, Edward, abdicates the throne, George is suddenly and most reluctantly crowned the new king of Great Britain, King George VI. And he's crowned at the very moment when his country sits on the brink of war with Hitler and with Germany. They are in desperate need of a strong, confident, articulate leader. And George has been none of those things his whole life. His wife enlists the help of a speech therapist, if you know the story. And, and really the movie is about King George and this therapist and the challenging relationship that they have. But with the therapist's help, the king overcomes his stammer and he delivers a radio address that galvanizes his people and unites them for war. In fact, here is a picture of King George delivering this monumental address without stuttering. And I'd like to read a portion of this address to you. 1939, here's what it says. Here's what he said. In this grave hour, perhaps the most fateful in our history, I send to every household of my peoples, both at home and overseas, this message spoken with the same depth of feeling for each one of you as if I were to cross your threshold and speak to you in person. For the second time in the lives of most of us, we are at war. Over and over again, we've tried to find a peaceful way out, but this has been in vain. If the enemy prevails, it will prove fatal to any civilized order in the world. For the sake of all that we ourselves hold dear, it is unthinkable that we should refuse to meet this challenge. It is to this high purpose that I now call my people. I ask them to stand calm and firm and united in this time of trial. The task will be hard. There may be dark days ahead. But we can only do the right as we see the right and reverently commit our cause to God. If one and all we keep resolutely faithful to it, then with God's help we will prevail. With those words ringing in their ears, 
Great Britain's people marched into the greatest war in the history of the world and ultimately on to victory. The king's speech, it laid out the mission. It was honest about the challenges. It was confident in ultimate victory. And brothers and sisters, to be effective leaders, whether we're talking about kings or or presidents or generals or whoever, those persons have to step up and they have to make clear what the mission is so that everybody can rally around it and be a part of it. King George VI did a great job of that for his people as they stepped into war. Matthew ends his whole gospel with a speech. In fact, it is the speech of speeches. The King of Kings speech with the King of Kings mission laid out very clearly for those who are in his kingdom. In it, King Jesus tells us why we are here and what we are to be doing while we're here. And he does not stutter, he doesn't stammer, and he is most assuredly not reluctant to be the king. As we step into the speech this morning, let me begin by asking you, as followers of Jesus this morning and and as a church living under the banner of the king, do you think it's possible for us to sometimes lose sight of why we are here? You think that happens? You think that happens in Christians' lives and in the lives of churches? We lose sight of why we're here. We forget what the, the real mission is. Or maybe even replace the king's main objective with, with some other mission of our own making. Do you think that happens? That happens. That happens to, to individual believers in Jesus. That happens to churches as well. King Jesus delivered this speech to keep that from happening. So let's take a closer look at verses 16 to 20 of chapter 28 and and embrace maybe with a, a fresh resolve the mission, the mission of the king as he has entrusted it to us. Now, by way of a little bit of context, since we're kind of dropping you into this moment, a little bit of a timeline Jesus was raised to life on Easter morning. That's in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. And then we know from the other Gospels that Jesus appeared to his disciples on that same day. In fact, he appeared to a number of people on that very same resurrection day. And then eight days after that, Jesus appears again to his disciples. And this time, Thomas is present. Remember, he wasn't present the first time. And and he has his moment with Jesus and and realizes, yes, he's the risen king. And then the disciples go to Galilee, and some of them are fishing, and Jesus appears to them on the shore. And this is where we have that famous feed my sheep conversation between Jesus and Peter in John chapter 21. And then after that, here we are, verse 16, on a mountain in Galilee. Jesus meets the 11 disciples here on the top of a mountain, we're told. This time, though, perhaps with as many as 500 other followers 
present. If 1 Corinthians 15.6 fits into this moment, which seems reasonable, apparently Jesus arranges this special moment since much of his ministry had taken place in the Galilean region and there were many who had followed him, many who had believed in him, many who had experienced his miracles and, and sat under his teaching as the Messiah King. So verse 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now we know that the some who doubted would not have been the 11 at this point. They're all thoroughly convinced. They're, they're full on into the risen Lord Jesus. So there are definitely other people present. Perhaps a crowd, as I say, as large as 500 people. Some of them just like Thomas had been. Skeptical, unsure that it could really be Jesus. And this is what makes verse 17 wonderfully honest and relatable to by you and me. Here are Jesus' followers. They're standing before the risen Savior. Some are ready to offer their full surrender and worship to Jesus. They are all in and they cannot contain their joy. The top of this mountain is going to become for them the most glorious cathedral that they will ever worship in. But others are not so sure that they're seeing the real Jesus. Jesus had died. Jesus had been crucified. A spear had been plunged into his heart as insurance that he was dead. He was buried. He died. Is this really the same Jesus? Some of those Galilean followers are wondering that. Some doubted. And why did they doubt, church? Why did they doubt? Well, they doubt for the same reason that you and I struggle with doubt sometimes, right? We're human. We're human. They're they're standing before the resurrection majesty of the glorified Son of God, and, and you know what? They're just overwhelmed by the thought. They're confused. They can't quite put it all together yet. Can't get their heads around it. Has that ever happened to you in your spiritual journey? You ever struggle? You have questions? You wonder? Yeah? Well, that's where they are in this moment. And so verse 17, you might just want to tuck this away. This is a great verse to show people, your friends, who perhaps are struggling with doubt in, their midst, in the midst of their journey towards faith in Jesus. Because sometimes people wrongly think that they have to understand everything about this thing called Christianity before they can actually step into faith with Jesus. Is that true? That you have to understand it all? Of course it's not true. If that was true, none of us would be Christians, right? Because even now in our relationship with Jesus, we have questions. We have struggles and our faith is tested. Our faith saves, but we have our questions. And Jesus is really okay with that. In fact, that could be you right now. You're sitting in this room right now. You're wanting to believe, but... You, you, you got these doubts. You've got these questions. You know, there's, there's room. I, I just want to say to you, there's room in genuine Christianity for doubts and wonderings and things beyond categories and, and nice, tidy little boxes that everything fits into. There's room for faith, even while those boxes aren't all ordered out for you yet. Followers who believe but struggle to comprehend it all. 
Now, sooner or later, we do have to come to the place where we say, you know what, Jesus? Even though I can't physically see you, I believe that you are alive and that you can transform my life and you can change my eternity. Even though I can't see you, I believe that. I will trust you to deal with my doubts in your good time. But in this moment, I believe you died for me. You rose from the dead to pay the sin debt that I could never pay. And I am yours. Yeah, amen. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us the honesty of verse 17. Some doubted. And so with that, the king's speech actually begins. Jesus is in his risen majestic glory, stands on this mountaintop, and he lays out the mission for all who will march under his banner, which hopefully is you and me this morning. And the speech begins with the power behind the mission. What's the power behind the mission, church? It's Jesus. Can we say that with a little more confidence? What's the power behind the mission, church? It's Jesus. It's Jesus' absolute authority, isn't it? Verse 18, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, that's, that's encompassing, has been given to me. Jesus, the Son, lovingly submitted himself to the authority of his heavenly Father, and the Father, in loving response, gives sovereign authority back to Jesus that is absolute and it is universal. We saw this authority exercised during Jesus' time on earth. Authority over every disease and every sickness, over demons and over death itself, forgiving sin at his own discretion. He had the authority, he said in John chapter 10, to lay down his life and then to take it up again. That's authority. Revelation chapter 20 says that Satan and the entire demonic realm are going to be hurled into the eternal lake of fire at the authoritative word of Jesus. That's coming because he has ultimate authority. Here in Matthew 28, by virtue of Jesus' humble obedience to his Father's will in all things, even assuming our sin at the cross, by virtue of that humility and his victory over sin and death at the resurrection, the Father grants to Jesus all authority over everything, everywhere. The only thing not under Jesus' authority is the Father himself. But they are co-equals as part of the Trinity. And nowhere is this more powerfully declared to us in Scripture than In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11, these are words that you would know quite well. In fact, you suppose, church, we could read these right off the screen together? Let's read these words together. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's just an expansion of the king's speech in verse 18. He's he's saying what that is saying. 
And then just to run this all the way out for us, uh, kind of doctrinally, theologically, when Jesus, by his power as king of kings, has brought everything under his rule, the Bible says he then gives it all back to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. Then when all things are under his authority, the son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. And so, in fact, what we have here is is it, it all comes full circle in a beautiful, beautiful way. The authority comes from the Father. It's given to the Son through the Holy Spirit. The Son gives it all back to the Father so that he can be all in all. It's the perfect picture and, and, and full circle beauty. It's pretty cool, isn't it? That's how it's going to go. That's the story that is our Christian faith. It's why the Apostle Paul can say with such courage and resolve, though he is in prison for following Jesus, he can say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who what? Who strengthens me? Because he has all of the authority. And Jesus anchors the mission that he's going to give to us. He anchors the mission in this unchanging reality of his absolute authority over everything, everywhere. What I'm commanding you to do, do because of who I am. I am your sovereign king. And with that, as the introduction to his speech, the king is now ready to tell us what our mission is. we got to know what the mission is. Just like Great Britain's people needed to know what's the mission, we need to know what the mission is. And so on your note page, the goal of the mission, what is it, church? Make disciples. That's the mission. Go therefore, says Jesus, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the mission. Now, if we were in an English literature class, this is where the teacher would say, Okay, students, there's one imperative and three participles in this sentence. Participles, participles, anyone? Participles, Bueller. <laughs> right. now, now, for many of us, it's been so long, we can't even remember if we were ever in an English class to say nothing about locating participles and and imperatives and all that. So I'm not going to put you through that agony. The imperative to our mission as the king presents it is to make disciples. That's the imperative. It's the command. It's the prime directive of the mission. It's the very heart of what we are to be about and doing. Make disciples. What's the point and the purpose of the church worldwide? And what is the point and purpose of this church? Tell me, what is it? Make disciples. That's it, isn't it? That, that's it. Make disciples. Now, if that is our mission, do we all know what a disciple is? What's a disciple? Ah, it's a follower of Jesus. A genuine follower of Jesus. 
In the New Testament, it simply means to follow wholeheartedly the leadership and teaching of another. And for us, that happens to be Jesus. When Jesus called Matthew, whose gospel we're in right now, Jesus, all he had to say to him was, follow me. And Matthew knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Submit to my leadership over your life starting right now. Imitate what I do. Obey what I say. What I teach from here on out. Those are your marching orders. And there's no going back for you. This is it. Matthew dropped everything, Luke 5 tells us, and followed Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus. The mission of the church and the mission of this church, according to the king's speech, is to make disciples. Making disciples includes two things, brothers and sisters, two things. It's not complicated. Two things. Introducing people who don't know Jesus in a saving way to Jesus. That's one of the things we must do if we're going to make disciples. Show them how they can enter into a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus alone, experience the forgiveness of sin, have the Holy Spirit's power living within them, and the hope of eternal life, both now and forevermore. Making disciples includes introducing people to Jesus, bearing witness to him in our lives and how he can be in another person's life as well. It's the beginning of following. But making disciples also includes what happens after that decision to follow Jesus is made. It's the process of Jesus' followers growing and maturing in their spiritual lives. It's growing brothers and sisters up to be an increasingly more accurate reflection of the one that they're following. Making disciples is you and me, all of us who love Jesus, introducing people to faith in Jesus and then helping them to mature to become disciple makers themselves. Are you with me? Not complicated, is it? It's two things. Introduce and then grow up. Biblically healthy churches, biblically healthy Christians are going to be intentionally involved, says the king, In both of those things, beginning and then the ongoing process, planting and then growing up, enlisting and then equipping, introducing and then edifying, witnessing and then maturing. Now notice as the king lays out the mission, he says that making disciples is going to entail three things, those three participles. This is how it's going to happen. The king says, it's going to happen by you going, baptizing, and what's the third one? Teaching. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission, which is what this passage is commonly referred to as, it's called the Great Commission, Jesus commissioning his followers to the mission. The great commission, I would suggest to us, is really the great go mission, isn't it? It's the go mission. Go, therefore, says Jesus, and make disciples of all nations. 
Now, we might ask, is the king requiring his followers to go somewhere different from the country that they are in, that they grew up in, that they're a part of? Go and make disciples of all the nations? Is that what Jesus is saying? You've got to leave the place, you come to faith in Christ, and then you, you leave this place and you go to some other country in the world, other nations? Or is Jesus saying that as you live your life, wherever you go, make disciples there? Which one is it? It's both, isn't it? It's both. It's both of those things. The mission of the king is to make disciples among all the nations and people groups on the planet. I mean, how are people going to come to know Jesus in Sri Lanka or Kyoto, Japan or Lima, Peru or Melbourne, Australia, if everybody stays at home? Somebody's got to go. The Apostle Paul makes that point, does he not? In Romans chapter 10, do you remember these words? For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Followers of the king must be willing to go where? To the nations. There's some who have to be willing to do that and will be willing to do that. At the same time, not everybody can go and the goers need senders to support them. But those senders, while they remain, they are doing what, church? They're doing the mission, which is what? Making disciples. They're making disciples at home, right? It takes both goers and senders, but the senders have not been obedient to the king if they think that just because they cut a check and dropped it in the offering basket at church to support the missionaries, that they have fulfilled the great go mission. If that's what they're thinking, that's wrong thinking. Making disciples is everyone's mission. Did we hear that? Every single one of us. Making Jesus known and growing Christians up wherever we are. In a sense, we are all missionaries, right? Would you agree with that? We're all missionaries. In fact, when you head out today, when you go out the double doors into the parking lot, before you step out of the building, look up above the double doors. Because there is a sign above the double doors. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. Or maybe you noticed it a long time ago, but you've forgotten that it even exists there now. Do you know what the sign says? You are now entering your mission field. The moment we step out of those doors, that's our mission field. Why? Because the mission is to make disciples, introduce people to Jesus, and grow them up in Jesus. And every single one of us are called to that mission. Agreed? Agreed? (laughs) So if King Jesus asks you today, what are you doing to obey my command to make disciples, what would you say? How would you answer him in this moment? You, personally. Me, personally. This speech begs us to respond to that question. Well, then after the go, Jesus says, baptize. 
It's not an imperative. It's a participle. Making disciples is the imperative. But the participle is part of how this happens. Baptize. It's a command not only to baptize, but to be baptized as well. It's, it's both of those thoughts. A disciple begins his following of Jesus by obeying this command to be baptized. Are you a Christian this morning? Have you been baptized as a follower of Jesus? The early church would have been truly confused by someone who claimed to be a Christian but was not baptized. Baptism takes what could be a private, secret faith thing between a Christian and God and brings it out into the open for everybody else to see it. That's what baptism does. Does baptism save church? No. Absolutely not. No, nothing that we do saves us. But baptism is a demonstration of our obedience to Jesus and our love for him and the fact that, hey, I don't want this to be a secret thing. Jesus asked me to do it, so I'm going to do it. The early church would say, you know Jesus? (laughs) Then you've either been baptized or you're going to be baptized. Someone says, well, you know what? It just hasn't worked into my schedule yet. Or, I don't know if I'm ready. Or, I'm embarrassed to, to, to do that. Um, I, I don't want to be the focus of attention. And year after year after year, the same excuses. And we, you got to go, what? Really? 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 The God of all creation hung naked for us on a cross, dying our death, paying our sin debt, and we don't want our church family to focus on us for a few moments as we declare our love for him because it's uncomfortable or embarrassing in some way. Really? The king's mission statement isn't a, it's not a buffet bar where you pick what you want to do. It's all part of what we do, right? It's all important because the king commanded it. Churches, baptize the people in your church family who love me. And Christians, be baptized. If you're following King Jesus this morning, and it's the real deal for you, I would just say, let's get on with that. Let's get you baptized. Let's do that. There's a brochure out in the foyer that I think would answer many of the questions you might have about baptism. So pick that up if you uh, are inclined to go in that direction. Let's, let's be a part of helping stay on mission. Let's do the baptizing part. You're going to put your faith in Christ, and then you're going to let people know that you're a lover of Jesus. Go, be baptized, and then teach them. Disciples makers, they, they teach the followers of Jesus what Jesus taught. It's verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Every once in a while, someone comes along and levels a criticism against the the ministry here at the Bible church and kind of goes like this. You guys are so top heavy with the teaching and the doctrine stuff and the verse by verse preaching. Can't you just love on people? Can't you just love them? Why do you got to do all that other stuff? You know, my response from what I observe, this church family does an amazing job of loving on people. 
It really does. And I, I, don't, I, I don't think I'm, 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 well, I am biased, but I don't think that's affecting this judgment in the moment. I'm amazed at times how we love. We, you, love the people of our community and each other. Could we do it better? You bet. Of course we could always love better. And it's true, Jesus commands us to love well as a, as a conspicuous mark of our love for him. But the great go mission inescapably prioritizes teaching what Jesus taught so that disciple makers grow up to become disciple makers. Because that's the mission. Jesus modeled this. He, he prayed this. In fact, on the night before he was crucified, he said to his father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Set your people apart by the word. Teaching your people the word. Because out of that, everything else flows. Love and service and passion for the unsaved, all of it. It flows out of the teaching. The early church was filled with sound teaching and doctrine, practical application of the truth. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 2.15 because, well, these words were sent to Timothy by Paul. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles what? The word of truth. Now, knowing God's word well, That's not an end in itself so that you and I become walking Bible commentaries and kind of get puffed up by that. But the more deeply we fall in love with the king because we've studied the word, yearning to learn, man, that translates into disciple making. That's growing people up, teaching them what Jesus taught. Because that's the mission. That's the mission. And then Jesus ends his speech, if you flip your note page over, with our encouragement in the mission. As the king says, and behold, I am with you, what? Always. That's our encouragement for the mission. Our king doesn't just promise us his power. He promises us his presence with us in the mission, even to the end of the age. His presence with us transcends time. Every second and until time ceases to have meaning, he's going to be with us on the mission. Now, does that encourage you? That encourages me. I'm not going to be doing this thing alone. I'm not going to be doing this in my own strength. The king says, I'm with you all the way. Just days after this mountaintop speech, we learn in Acts chapter 2 that the king intended for his presence to go with us everywhere we go by the presence of the indwelling spirit of God who comes to live in us when we put our faith in Jesus, right? Jesus comes to live in us by his spirit. To have the spirit of God living in us is to have Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says the spirit of Christ lives in you. What a promise. As you go, as you reach the nations, as you make disciples in your own backyard or across the ocean, I am always going to be with you. How does that feel? Does that feel good? That feels good. 
That feels real good. Every conversation we have, every setting we're in, every sphere we step into, every age, Jesus says, everywhere he is with us. The king is with us. In those priceless redemption moments when someone who didn't know Jesus in our circle comes to know Jesus by faith and we get to be there when they make that decision. I'm always with you, says Jesus, and and we get to be a part of that incredible moment from death to life. And the king says, I'm going to be with you in those times when you share me with somebody and they cuss you out. And they tell you, never say that name in my presence again. Jesus says, I am always going to be with you. So in those wonderful moments when people embrace and in those moments when they reject, Jesus says, I'm I'm there. I'm there. And the beauty of it is, brothers and sisters, the outcome is not our responsibility. What's our responsibility? To be faithful, to name the name. To name the name. It's up to God to do the rest. Well, the king's speech, it provides us, I think, church family, with an opportunity to hold up what we are supposed to be doing here and individually here and ask, are we doing it? Are we doing it? This speech challenges us to answer that question. Are we doing this? And that brings us then to the final point there on your little note page. Jesus, go mission and IBC. More and more and more disciples who are growing and reproducing themselves. How are we doing on mission with the king? How do you think we're doing as a church? How do you think you're doing as an individual believer in Jesus? How do you think it's going for us? You know, if I'm honest, if, if I'm honest, I think in many ways we're, we're as a church family, we're doing, doing the mission well. And then I would also have to say that we have considerable room for improvement in some areas. And the king is challenging us here today. Of that I'm absolutely certain. He's challenging you. He's challenging me. He's challenging our leadership team. He's he's challenging our staff. He's challenging all of our teachers and all of our behind-the-scenes servants. And he's challenging all of us who call Idlewell Bible Church home or wherever you happen to be from. He's challenging us to actually be disciple-makers engaged intentionally in introducing people to Jesus and maturing them up. And none of us gets a pass. Agreed? Okay, great. Because that's the mission, isn't it? That is the mission. Our reason for being is to make more and more and more growing disciples of Jesus. That's why we're on the hill, isn't it? On your note page, there's a, I reproduced the purpose and priority statement from our Constitution. It's Article 2. 
Here's what it says. God called Idaho Bible Church into existence to bring glory to himself because it's all about that, isn't it? It's ultimately all about the glory of God. To achieve this purpose, we are committed to helping people what? Discover a loving personal relationship with God and a, a relationship in which together we grow to become all that he wants us to be. What is that? Discovering who Jesus is and then growing in who Jesus is. What is that? That's disciple making, isn't it? That's why we exist as a church. And then we go on to list the things that we desire and we back all of that up with scripture. But here's the thing, church family. The purpose statement. You can have a purpose statement on your church documents, but it's it's just words if we really don't personally and collectively own the king's speech. It's just words. Agreed? It's just words. So keeping it honest with you, which is what you'd want me to do, I think we're better at maturing disciples here at IBC than we are at multiplying disciples. And I don't think very many of you would argue with that. Many people come to IBC because the Bible is, is the go-to for everything that we do. We, we say, well, what, what, is this, what does the word say? The preaching is expositional and, and the doctrine is sound and the gospel is clear. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And, and, and I hear with some frequency, man, I've learned so much since I came to Idlewild Bible Church. And I say, that's great. Great. We, we want that. God's people growing here, growing and maturing and fleshing out the character of Jesus more and more consistently. We're doing okay in the growing place. Could we do better? Absolutely, we could do better. But the king's mission is not just about maturing believers. It is about multiplying, introducing unbelievers to Jesus, actively taking the transforming truth of Jesus to those who do not know him yet because we love the king and that's his heart. Are you with me? Taking the transforming truth of Jesus to those who don't know him yet and loving them with the truth of God's word in the power of the Holy Spirit until they do know Jesus or fully informed, they determine to reject him anyway. Again, the outcome's not up to us. More and more and more disciples made. That's the mission. Introducing and multiplying and maturing. We may not be called to go to a nation geographically somewhere, but we are all, every one of us in this room who love Jesus, we are all for sure being called in Matthew chapter 28 to be going to the people that we meet and have relationship in our day-to-day life in Idlewild, at work, through the town hall sports, at school, at Jezercise, at the post office, at a restaurant, whatever it is, whatever those relationships are, wherever they happen, that's where we're supposed to be making disciples. Because the king said so. If I were to ask you, brother, sister, I'm going to ask myself too, follower of Jesus, when did you have your last gospel conversation with someone 
who you have relationship with who does not know Jesus, so far as you know. When was the last time you had a gospel conversation? A week ago? Two weeks ago? A month ago? Six months? Can't remember? Our mission is to make disciples more and more and more growing disciples. The king has promised his power so we can do it. And we have his presence right now. There's nothing holding us back. More and more and more growing disciples. What do you say we do that? For the king. For the king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, King Jesus, for leaving us your speech. It leaves us both encouraged and convicted, if we're honest with you. And you're looking right into our hearts. You already know where we're at with all this. Speaking as the mouthpiece for our church family, Heavenly Father, I would, I believe I'd be close to on point if I just told you that we are sorry that we are not engaged in the mission to the degree that we would want to be and should be. We recognize that. And while you've enabled us to help grow people up well, there's so much more we could do in that arena. And, Lord, you are calling us to be bold, to talk about you with people who don't know you, that are in our circle. And there's reasons why we... We don't do that like we could or should. This isn't a guilting moment, but we have fears. Help us. Help us, King Jesus. Help us to fulfill the mission that you called us to. May many come to faith going forward from this point because we were faithful to the mission. May many grow up here in this place because we've been faithful to the mission. For your glory we ask it. And all God's followers said, Amen and Amen.